We come this morning to the 22nd through the 42nd verse, verses of John chapter 10. So we're continuing on in our sermon series in John. Um, and it's printed for you in your bulletin, or if you have a Bible with you, turn there. We'll be looking at, uh, this is the uh, passage. So John 11 is Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. One of the most famous passages in all the Gospels. This is immediately before then. Um, and so this would fall chronologically maybe a couple of weeks. Well, not a couple of weeks, but the, the December before um, uh, Easter. So this is a few months before Easter happens, uh, the, the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection. So to get our placement and mindset in there. So uh, turn with me, if you haven't already, John 10, 22-42. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. Then came the festival of, festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my father's name testify about me, but you do not believe. Because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I am the Father of one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy. Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I've said you are gods. If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent to the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said I am God's Son, do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. That you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed, and many people came to him, and they said, Though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you catch a glimpse of who you are and what you're about. And thus we see in you who we are to be, and what is ours through you. And these moments illumine our hearts to see the truth of your word and show us Jesus and his majesty and his beauty, that we may love him all the more, that we may be turned toward him to become one. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Holidays and anniversaries are big deals. I think it must be a basic human impulse because if you travel across the world and you look at civilizations from time immemorial, you will see that uh, human beings like to set apart days to celebrate. Something happens and they say, well, this is a holiday now. We're celebrating this every year. It's even gotten a little out of hand lately, I think, with social media. I think every other week there's a National Donut Day or National Pepperoni Pizza Day, National Dog Day. And I'm all about that if, it's, if it means like discount from Dunkin' Donuts or Krispy Kreme. That's great. I like to celebrate my dogs. But anyway, I think there's a basic human impulse. 
to set times apart to stop and remember. Think about it. Holidays, real holidays, aren't usually just a day off of work. It's not, it's not like somebody put a calendar on the wall through a dart and said, all right, we're going to be off Tuesday. No, it's usually for a reason, right? They're tied to something that we've decided is worth remembering. To recognize that there's something about this day each year that makes us need to stop from our normal routine and do something different. So Veterans Day is this past week. It's a day we set apart to recognize together as a country the sacrifice and heroism of military personnel and their families. Thanksgiving is in a couple of weeks. What is Thanksgiving? It's a day that we set apart to stop and have a day of gratitude, etc., etc. It goes through all kinds of different holidays. They're set apart for a reason. And they usually come with things that we do to mark the day. In the Gospel of John, a lot of Jesus' actions happen around holidays. We mentioned it here and there. If you read back through what we've already gone through in John, you'll see that one of the framing devices for him as he's writing, one of the things that he keeps pointing to when he's talking about something Jesus has done or Jesus has said is a holiday on the calendar. Passover, Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, at one point, he even said just a festival. <laughs> he didn't even specify which one, but Jesus was in Jerusalem for one of the festivals. Again, he keeps pointing out these holidays, and often what Jesus says or does will some way be tied to what's going on with that holiday. So if you'll remember, a few weeks ago, we were talking about Jesus being in Jerusalem for Feast of Tabernacles, and they had a light ceremony every night. That's when Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. At Passover, recognizing the lamb and the unleavened bread related to the feast, that's when Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Jesus was tying these into specific uh, things related to the holidays, to the festivals. And this passage actually is no different. Notice in verse 22, it says that this happened in a festival of dedication at Jerusalem. Now, if you've never heard of the festival of Festival of Dedication is probably because you might know it as Hanukkah. This passage is happening in Hanukkah season. Now Hanukkah was an interesting celebration. So Passover, Feast of Tabernacles, uh, Pentecost, those all recognized things that had happened during the time of Moses, so about 1,400 years before the time of Jesus. Hanukkah recognized and celebrated something that had happened just and here's what it was. I won't do a history lesson per se, but just to give us an idea of what's going on and what Hanukkah celebrated. So a couple hundred years before the time of Jesus, the people of Israel and the land of Israel were overrun by the Seleucid Empire. And it was a big deal. Like they, The armies came in. They took over the temple. They actually set up pagan uh, uh, gods, in, like idols in the temple. So it's a big deal. Priestly family rose up and gathered an army and tossed the empire out of the land. They were they were uh, less res way less resourced. They, they they it seemed impossible from the outside, but the Maccabees rose up and the people followed them and they tossed out the Seleucid Empire. And for about a hundred years after that, they had political independence. They were not ruled over. They could worship in the temple without being bothered. 
So, in a sense, if you're thinking through American history, it's kind of like July 4th, or, or you know, the ideas about July 4th. The Boston Tea Party, and then it started a war, and the American colonies were way less resourced and should have been squashed by the British, but they weren't, right? They stood up, they rose up, and together they tossed them out. That's the way we talk about July 4th. So, Hanukkah was kind of that thing. In fact, the distance between the American Revolution and now is about the distance between happening and the time, what happened uh, to celebrate Hanukkah in the time of Jesus. So think about what this holiday would be. They would set it apart. They would recognize it. But suddenly it was like a holiday that takes on these different things they do to celebrate it. Hanukkah became a time when the people who were now under the weight of Roman political rule, who weren't in control of their land, Came a time when they would start to talk about revolution. It was a time of unrest, usually. Hanukkah would come around and people would say, You know what? That we could do the same thing that Maccabees did uh, back in the day. We could toss out the Romans. And so this would build and build. And the situation in the first century, the time of Jesus, is every couple of decades there would be some ruler who popped up. They would gather a small army behind them and say, let's march into Jerusalem, let's do the same thing, let's toss them out. So this is the context of what's going on. Now, of course, with that in the background, Hanukkah was a time to make leadership very nervous. It was a time on the calendar that if Jesus was going to declare a military kingdom, if Jesus was going to declare, I am here to toss them out, and that is my primary motivation, if he was going to gather his army and start a revolution, it was then. That would have been the time. And so with that in the background, I think it's easy to understand why Jesus, on the one hand, was such a threat to the religious authorities, to the political leadership, and why Jesus, on the other hand, was such a disappointment to some people. Think about it. So on the one hand, he was a threat to the religious leaders. They had found their place under Roman they figured out the, 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 the ways to move around and to, to keep their power but not challenge the folks who were stronger than them. And so they had kind of found their place in this world. And so when someone like Jesus comes up and he starts talking about God's kingdom and that he is king and the values of his kingdom, they see he's a threat. He's a threat to the stability that's kind of the bedrock of their own power. And so um, we touched on that a few weeks ago, but actually couple times in the last week. And as we see the opposition of the religious leaders, John tells us why. In John 11, the next chapter, chapter uh, verse 48, they're in deliberation and they say this, if we let him go on, if we let Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. So for the religious leaders, Jesus was a profound thing. Said he's going to disrupt the stability and the Romans are going to come in and squash us. They're going to take everything we love away. So, on the one hand, Jesus was a threat. On the other hand, Jesus was a profound disappointment to the people who at the time of Hanukkah here in this passage were saying, Show us, if you're going to be the Messiah, tell us now. We want a military leader to rise up and lead us and hate everybody we hate and love everybody we love. They want revolution right now. So Jesus arrives on the, on the scene as Messiah, the God of promise. And when he didn't arm his followers, when he didn't have 5,000 people in front of him and miraculously make swords appear in their hands, when he instead fed them, there was a profound disappointment 
When he kept healing and showing grace to people he shouldn't, like in the John chapter 4, when Jesus heals the son of a Roman official, it was profoundly disappointing. When he kept showing the grace to people that the crowds thought ought to be wiped out, they were disappointed. Why? Because they could not imagine a type of power that not, would not be displayed in force. They couldn't imagine a type of power that would not be displayed in force. Their minds had become so warped by the way this world works that they couldn't imagine that when God's Messiah, the king of his kingdom, arrived, that it wouldn't be like a nuclear bomb going off, destroying everything except him. That, of course, as I said, God would be on their side. He wouldn't ask them any hard questions and pay anybody back. So that's the source of the confusion in verse 24. That's why here in verse 24 they ask him, they demand, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Now, this question, if you know everything that's gone on so far in the Gospel of John as we walk through it, this demand is a bit ridiculous. It's a bit ridiculous. Jesus has spent the last few years showing and telling them exactly who he is. Over and over again. He's shown them in his actions. What Jesus calls his works here. The healings that he's done. The actions that he's taken have all pointed to the fact of who he is. And yet they demand more because he's not fitting the box they want him to fit. But he hasn't just shown them and left them to figure it out on their own. He's told them in his teaching. He's been very clear in his language about who. He's the Son of God, God sent from God, who has come to bring light into this world of darkness, life into this world of death, salvation from the power of sin that holds everyone down. He's been very clear. And so Jesus, at their kind of ridiculous demand and question, he doesn't just tell them more things, but do more things. He meets them with a very uncomfortable truth about them. Look at verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not mine. Now, this is not Jesus mocking them. This is not Jesus saying, well, you can't even see it because, you know, I won't let you see it. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying they're stupid and they need to try harder to understand. Jesus is saying, your issue is not that you have a lack of facts about who I am. Your issue is not that you need more information to figure out who I am. Your issue is that you need to be mad. That you don't need to come to me with a list of demands that are ridiculous in the face of what I've already done and said. I am God's grace breaking into this world. You come to me and hear my voice, not with demands, but with faith. What's happened is their fear has shaped them. The religious leaders' fear has shaped them. The people's fear of the religious leaders has shaped them. They've become in their fear and in their sin like horses with blinders on their heads that keep them from seeing the fullness of what's happening before their eyes. Ever seen a horse with blinders on? If a horse is pulling a carriage, coachman will put blinders on their head and keep them seeing what's here and what's here, so the horse doesn't get startled, so the horse can keep its focus, not become distracted and panicked. And I think maybe the religious leaders and the people 
had put blinders on at some point just to get through the world. Just to get through the difficulty of the world that they found themselves in. But these blinders, born of fear and even sin, they kept them from seeing who Jesus actually is. So the point that Jesus is making is you don't need more information to see that I'm the Messiah. You don't need more information to see that I'm sent from God. You need to stop trying to make me fit into this box you created. I am the shepherd of God's sheep. I've arrived on the scene and you said you can't be the shepherd because you don't look like our shepherd. And Jesus is saying, yeah, because you're looking for the wrong shepherd. <laughs> they need to stop trying to make Jesus fit in the box they've created. They need to allow God to pull those blinders off. They need to turn away from their fear. The people need to turn away from their fear. The religious leaders... The religious leaders need to turn away from their fear of the Roman authorities and their power to see God in their midst right there. They need to turn away from their thoughts and expectations that they've made about God's Messiah and who will be and turn to Jesus in their front of them. The true Messiah that is right there, God in the flesh, standing right in front of them. Again, when Jesus says here, you are not my sheep, he's not mocking them. He's not saying, man, man, man. That's not what's going on. Jesus is meeting their ridiculous demand with a blunt response. But the very fact, take this into account, the very fact of him saying it to them, you are not my sheep, is an invitation to stop depending on their sinful fear as their good shepherd and to find themselves at home with him as his sheep. Now, fear can do the same things to our hearts. We talked about fear a little bit the last few weeks. And I think the unique thing for us, most of us in this room, most of us probably listening to this, our fear, or, or the things we've tried to set up to negotiate our way in this world, it's not going to lead us to say, well, Jesus isn't the Messiah. That's not my danger, most of the time. I don't have doubts that Jesus is the Son of God, that He's Savior of sinners. That's not where my issues, maybe, with the walls that I build up, build up when fear take place. For me, it's not that I'll reject Jesus straight out, but it's that I'll close myself off to Him and justify myself in the process. I think for most of us, it usually looks less like rejecting Jesus in His person, but it'll look like explaining away following Him in difficult things. Let me explain what I mean. Take your insistence. Jesus calls us to love our neighbor. Love our neighbor. neighbor. And repeat it over and over again throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament, for his people to have a particular eye to the poor, the marginalized. As the book of James says, pure religion that the Lord accepts is taking care of widows and orphans. This is what God tells us over and Love your neighbor, love them sacrificially, and have a particular eye to those who are in distress. Yet, for me, and for many Christians I know, especially in the West and America, it's not uncommon for us to look at a person who's in great need. And instead of rushing to help, begin to ask questions of qualification. In a sense, we want to demand more information before we feel like we're qualified to make a decision on whether we should help. We begin to demand more as if we don't have enough information. If someone who's created in the image of likeness God standing in front of us in need, 
began to ask more questions. Did they do this to themselves? Did they already have this coming? So maybe I'm not compelled to help. Someone's in need, and we ask questions like, uh, are they here illegally? Someone's in need, and we'll ask, did they try hard enough to find a job yet? And I'm not talking about government programs. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when people are in need directly in front of us. We begin to justify in our heads us not acting in love. That we need more information before we can move in compassion. Or we'll justify by saying, well, you really shouldn't help them because they'll abuse our help. I remember distinctly being in a worship service a number of years ago. I remember a preacher who was talking about being approached by a beggar that week. And he remember describing the beggar. He said, he smelled, he smelled like alcohol, and he looked like, you know, just begging for money to get more beer. The preacher asked the man a bunch of questions. The man was asking for a couple bucks. Only after the man assured the preacher that he would absolutely not use the money for alcohol or drugs did the preacher give the man some money. But this is what's always stuck with me about it. As the preacher handed him money, he said, if you use this for drugs or alcohol, I hope it makes you sick as a Not because I want people who are trapped in alcoholism and drug abuse to continue drinking or using drugs, not by any means, but that attitude of here, you need to jump through these hoops before I even look you in the eye. What if our compassion, and I'm preaching to myself right now, what if our compassion was extravagant at the cost of looking foolish? At the cost of possibly, quote unquote, wasting money and resources? What if it was extravagant enough to match the worth and dignity of the image of God, not making people jump through hoops? Or making sure people feel enough shame before we help them? We do that a lot. And again, I point this out because I think the danger for us is not that we would see Jesus and his deeds and hear his teachings and say, no, I reject Jesus as Messiah. Because after we come to him, our greatest danger is that we will uh, hedge our bets and that we will justify ourselves not following him sacrificially. Again, I'm not saying that to be foolish in our generosity. If we're going to err one way or another, let's err through the side of extravagance in our kindness. Because our God is extravagantly kind to us. Back to the passage. Jesus has met that outlandish demand with this blunt response. You don't need more info. You can't hear my voice because you want my sheep. You can't hear my voice because your ears are closed. But again, it's an invitation, which is why he says this. He tells them what it would mean for them to be his sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them from my hand. My Father who has given, given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is the promise to all of us who come to him by faith. We have heard the voice of Jesus, and from his hand we receive eternal life. Not just really long life, that's not what eternal life means. But we found him, the eternal God. And now he, in all his inexhaustible goodness, becomes our source of confidence. The source of nourishment, the source of strength that will never run out. We gain access to this fountain of goodness that will never run dry. 
But we've also received from him a sense of security. I have faith today, but how do I know that I'm not going to blow it tomorrow? I believe today. How do I know that tomorrow I won't wake up and my faith is run dry? My grasp on God has loosened. How, will, how do I know I won't find myself in a worse condition than before? Because verse 28, I give you eternal life. Jesus is saying, I give them eternal life. Not they reach out and grab it. I give it to them and they shall never perish. That's his confidence in himself, not his confidence in us. No one will snatch them out of our hand. Our confidence is not that we hold on to God with both hands so tightly. Our confidence is that he has grasped us to bring us home. And you know what? That actually is another, this is kind of, I just thought about this. Talk about how the danger for us is not so much that we're going to reject Jesus and who he is, but that we're going to uh, 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 not listen to his voice and everything or not really. It, this is another area here. Because we get such great promises of his incredible love from which we will not be separated. We get assurances from Him that through Him we are adopted into God's family. We are delighted in daughters and sons of God. Yet, when things go wrong, when things don't happen the way I expect them, I so often run to shame or guilt. When I mess up, tempers are stupid. Why did you do that? Or why did you do that again? What if our faith meant believing not just who Jesus is and what he's done, but also who he says we are? Leaning into running to who I am at my foundation is not stupid or not sinful, period. Who I am, when you pull everything back, yes, so often I am actually foolish and I am sinful. Pull everything back. The God of all creation has designated me as one on whose, who, whom his affections have been set. I am delighted in. I am a delighted in son of God. You can run to that always. He loves me. He loves you. And our confidence is this, friends. It's not just that Jesus is a good guy or even the best guy that ever lived. He's the son of God. God sent from God. So the foundation of our confidence is this. That he above whom there is no other. None greater. He set his affection on us. No one can separate us from him. That's one of the things that Psalm 82 is about. We read that as our call to worship. And it's, as I said, it, it can hit you a little strange. Because it's God. It says God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. The psalmist is taking this greatest thing we can think of, the greatest imagination of the human mind is the creation of, of, of gods, of idols, that are so lifted up and high in their power. Psalm 82 is God calling them into his presence. And calling the human leaders who set themselves up and say, well, God has made me king, or God has made me president, God has made me executive, or whatever. And what I say goes, God's point in Psalm 82, the psalmist was writing about, is that God is above all who would claim power, all who would claim authority. And what does God do with his power and authority? He defends the cause of the weak. He lifts up the No matter the injustice that is wrought 
by so-called leaders in our world, God is higher than that. He is the vindication, justification of the people that look to Him. And so that's what Jesus is saying here when our great confidence is, is on Him, above whom there is no greater. But again, this invitation here in this passage and this revelation of who Jesus is, the people what? They respond with hostility. Verse 31. They picked up stones to stone him. Why? Verse 33. For blasphemy. Because you and your man claim to be God. Which Jesus responds by referring to Psalm 82. Where God calls the quote unquote gods before him. Human rulers that were claiming God's name. And God tells them, look at verse 7 from Psalm 82, if you have it in front of you. I actually took the numbers off, sorry, um, in, in the printing. But it says that the gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk in darkness. Verse 7, they're going to die. They're going to mortals. They will fall like every other world. This is a psalm about God calling those with great power, whether that be political rulers or religious rulers or whatever. God calling them with those, those with great power to answer for how they use that power wrongly. So Jesus reaches for this psalm. It might feel like a strange one for him to reach to. But think about who he's interacting with. Religious leaders. Who have great power in themselves. He's been accused of blasphemy. The religious leaders tell Jesus they're passing judgment on him, picking up stones to kill him because of blasphemy. So Jesus flips the script on them, a lot like when they tried to bring the woman who had been caught in adultery before him. Remember, he said, well, let you who is without sin cast the first stone. His point was, you are fundamentally incapable of past passing judgment. He's saying the same thing here in a different way in Psalm 8, by using Psalm 82. He's telling them, you are the ones that Psalm 82 is talking about. You are the leaders who act like the gods, who think you answer to nobody. You are the ones who use your power for what you want. But you have to answer to God. You are fundamentally unqualified to pass judgment on the Son of God. Now, in, this pre in, in a previous passage, uh, Jesus had spoken about the works of these religious leaders showing who they really were. And here he says the same thing in reverse. That Jesus' works show who he is. And as I said earlier, this isn't Jesus passing a final verdict. This is Jesus offering an invitation. Light is standing right there in the midst of this darkness, shining. A light shining in their darkness that they might see, truly see and turn to Him. But sadly, that didn't happen. Maybe they were too in love with their fear, too afraid of their sin being found out, too prideful to turn to Jesus, probably a mixture of all of those. But their resistance to Him persisted to the point of handing Jesus over to the political authorities, demanding that He be put to death before things got too out of hand. Yet, how did God use that? How did God use even that injustice? God continued. Jesus continued in his obedience to the Father, not turning from an impulse to avoid pain, but he walked straight into the horror of his crucifixion, knowing that it was not the end, knowing that his vindication would be God that was lifted over, lifted high above these false gods, that God would thank him. And knowing that the place of their false judgment against him at the cross would become the place where he would pass judgment against our sin by removing it from us. That we might be reconciled to him in truth. 
So we talked about a lot. There's a lot going on in this passage, but I, I want to think of a couple of takeaways um, that we can kind of file away in our head and ponder on in our hearts. The first is this. Friends, our confidence, as we've already said, is not in ourselves. There's going to be seasons where faith feels easy or easier, when we feel like we've got a good grasp on everything. Maybe seasons where it feels like everything's working out, and we say, okay, yeah, I can walk with faith in this season. There's also going to be seasons where the rug is put out from underneath us. Seasons of sickness, seasons of job loss, seasons of economic instability, seasons of whatever. But our confidence remains in Jesus. As he speaks here, he's the good shepherd that gives eternal life to his sheep, that they will not perish, and none can snatch us from his hand. That's our confidence. Not that we are strong, but that he is. The most important thing about our faith is not the amount of our faith or the bigness of our faith. The most important thing about our faith is the object of our faith. And that's Jesus. In the same way that it doesn't matter how strong you are if you're standing on a, a, a foundation that's fallen beneath you, the strength of our standing is not our legs. It's the solid rock that we stand on. Another takeaway from this passage that I was thinking about. Now, most, most of us don't have real power, necessarily, to squirrel away. We're not going to be like a dragon in a fairy tale who stores all his gold and just sits on it. That's not what God has given us anything. The religious leaders in the time of Jesus, they're calling... If we could say it this way, the call in a sense was when Jesus arrived to celebrate, to point people to him, like John the Baptist. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what John the Baptist did. He wasn't self-protective. He had gained a following, but as soon as Jesus arrived on the scene, John said, look, this is the guy that I've hoped in. This is the fulfillment of all longings. He's here. Go follow him. Go follow him. The religious leaders instead, they threw up walls. They blocked Jesus out. He's too much of a threat. Most of us are going to have things in this world. Access to resources. Or we're going to have stuff that God's given to us. And the reason that it's been given to us is to glorify God and to love other people. Not to hedge our bets. Not to squirrel away. Because we can trust Him. There's going to be enough tomorrow. Because our God, who loves us, our Father, is there. And so we don't have to grow self-protected. He will care for us. And finally, our vindication is in God. How could Jesus face the doubts and oppositions to others because he knew his vindication was God? That he would not be sold over to injustice. That death would not be the end. That on the other side of his death he would rise in victory to defeat every enemy that stands against us. So in the here and now, we can face the doubts of our own heart, not because, again, we think we'll be strong enough, but because our vindication is Jesus. Our vindication is Jesus. We can have confidence that sin will not be the final word about us. No matter how deep that struggle has run or is running in our hearts right now, our vindication is Jesus. We have that sure. So trust in him, friends, not in yourself. Trust 